Hello, welcome to Desert Island Books, a podcast about reading. I'm your host and resident librarian, Natalie Mason from City of Melbourne Libraries. Joining me is a special guest who will share their top three all-time favourite books. Navoh Zissin is a Jewish, queer, non-binary activist and public speaker. They run workshops and professional development sessions in schools and workplaces around gender inclusivity. Navoh was in a documentary called Love in Full Colour that screened on SBS in 2016. In May 2017, Navoh became a published author at age 21 with the release of their memoir Finding Nevo on gender, sexuality and transition. Welcome to your desert island, Navoh. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. You happy with how we've set this up? Oh, I'm very happy to be on a desert island, to be honest, after current political climates. So yeah, desert island sounds good. No politics, no. just reading. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> Please. Can I, is it? deserted if I also stay here. No, you are welcome to. We can can select a few and far between people to join us. Okay, lovely. And books, of course. And books, of course. Yes, which is why we're here. Can we start by just talking about your book? Before we talk about the books that you've brought with you to Desert Island, um, I wanted to share with you um, your memoir published uh, only two years ago um, has been very popular in our library service and the copy that I read has been heavily underlined, <laughs> which, you know, I'm not allowed to encourage and I'm certainly not encouraging defacing library <laughs> books, but I wanted to share with you how meaningful your book has clearly been to someone because they have found the time to, in pencil, so I can correct it and take it out, but um, they've not only just underlined, they've also put asterisks next to certain passages that obviously had had meaning to them. Did you ever imagine your book would would connect with people in that way? I mean, it. I guess I did, but it still feels deeply to hear it. Um, I actually met a parent of a a young trans person recently who told me that they had annotated my whole book and I really wanted to see it. And so I signed a new book for them and gave it to them and then I think it was like a year or two later met this mother again and she gave me the annotated book and so I actually got to read their annotations and their thoughts as they came up through my writing And it just kind of, it's this bizarre thing where it felt like I was reading my own annotations of my own book, you know, because it it is a really shared experience. And I think representation for trans and non-binary people is so rare that when you actually find it, it feels, I mean, I'll talk about this later with one of my books, but um, it just feels unlike anything else. So yeah, seeing that in someone else. It, it's just this strange kind of, I almost feel cloned um, and I feel seen and I feel heard and listened to, but also feel grateful that I was able to create the space where they could actually reflect on my work in that kind of way. Yeah. And, you know, as as teenagers, when we're studying books in school, we're encouraged to underline and quote and make notes in the margin. So I, I felt like it was a young person doing that because it, it was very similar to the notes that I made in margins of books that I yeah, studied. And so, not for the sake of like essay writing no, or that's right. uh, reading comprehension, but actually just because you, you can't not yes. or you really want to remember something. I need to take this in and I need to revisit it and I need to remember it. Yeah, it's so, very yeah. special. So obviously not in the library copy. I think if you if you if you're really connected, you might want to um, go out and grab your own copy and do it in pen and really commit to those notes in the margin. But um, we've got an eraser on the stationary order, so when that comes in, I'll. Um, <laughs> I hope you take photocopies before you do that, so yeah, you can sure. preserve <laughs> those I'll make annotations. Sure you, I'll make sure you get a look. Please. There's, there's no writing; it's just underlining. But yep. um, yeah. 
All right. Well, now that we're here on the desert island, mm-hmm. I wonder if you could reveal for us the title and author of the first book you've chosen to bring with you. Sure. So the first book that I've brought with me is Catching Teller Crow by Amberlynn and Ezekiel Quay Malina. And I'm so excited to have this book with me. I get to read it over and over again for the rest of my desert life. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it really is because it's, it may be a short book, but it packs a hell of a punch. Yeah, so we read that book for the Victorian Premier Literary Awards for the young adult category. Which you were um, a judge. Which I was a judge. Yeah. And we as a judging team felt pretty confident on who the winner was going to be until we read that book. And it just kind of blew everything out of the water. Wow. I've just never read anything that was so, just so tight. Like Mm. as such a short book, there's so much there. It's so beautifully written. It covers so much ground. And there's something, I mean, as a a sort of settler coloniser, I can't necessarily comment on this from a, you know, Aboriginal perspective. But as far as how I read it, it just reads in such an authentically Aboriginal storytelling way, like the non-linearity of time and the way that kind of animals are represented and the symbolism, like it all just feels very intrinsically Aboriginal. And I felt very grateful to get to read something like that. It felt in a way like it wasn't, oh, this is going to sound so bizarre, it felt like it wasn't written. It felt like it was told and then written down. Yeah. But, I mean, half of it is written in poetry, so you have that kind of beautiful flow that you just don't get in written prose. And it, but, it, but still, even the prose had a kind of verbal quality to it. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I think there's a real kind of oral storytelling element to it and I think the whole book reads like one big poem with with how well edited it is and how tight it is that it looks like every single word every line has been really kind of studied and decided upon and it's very consciously there like you won't you won't really find anything that's out of place Um, and I I just felt desperate to read it again as soon as I finished and for me that is always the mark of a really great book. So have you been through it a second time? I haven't, okay. but that's because I'm still recovering from all of the reading I had to do during that period. Um, and I'm reading five books at the moment. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. Make it number six, pop it at the bottom of yep. the pile. So I learned something about the authors. Well, first of all, how did two people write one book? Like that just seems... Especially siblings. Right? I don't know how I would work with my siblings in a creative project. <laughs> <laughs> I do <laughs> You'd find a way to make it work, I'm sure. Yeah, but there maybe. are two distinct characters in the book. Mm-hmm. There's Beth and there's Catching, and um, and I wonder if the siblings took a perspective each. Do you think that would have been how they approached it? Yeah, I have no idea. Um, I'm working with a couple of different authors on potential books in the future and doing collaborative work, and we've definitely taken the one character each approach. I can't really imagine what it would look like otherwise. I mean, I'm struggling to imagine what that would look like. Yeah. If, <laughs> um, but, yeah, yeah I, I don't know how else you kind of would do it. I guess you'd have to have a lot of collaboration and a lot of trust in each other. Yeah, to have a singular voice all the way through, although the beauty of this book is that there are two very distinct voices that mm. go all the way through because we get those two narrators. Yeah, it, it was. I wasn't sure. And I, of all the reading I've done about the book, it's never disclosed. I think we are yeah, just right. imagining how they did it because they did it so well. Well, I wonder What's if that was a con- like a conscious decision of theirs not to disclose how the writing process had gone just yeah. to kind of make people wonder. 
because oh, yeah. it's magic. The other thing I learned about these siblings, about Amberlynn and Ezekiel, is that their mum is Sally Morgan, who is one of Australia's most celebrated, in, uh, certainly in my opinion, one of Australia's best Aboriginal writers. Yeah, right. She wrote a book called My Place, which was memoir and biography in 1987 about her experience of growing up as a, an Aboriginal woman. And we, I remember studying it the year after or something in year seven. Like we really just dissected that book. And so Sally Morgan has since sort of simplified the book and turned it into a sort of picture book and a chapter book for children wow. and kind of, you know, re reimagined her, her life story in different ways for a younger audience because the memoir was written for adults. So Sally Morgan is, has been a very early sort of influence or yeah, a, an wow. early author for me. And so to come back and to read this book and love it, mm. to have you choose it, which was just the perfectest timing, <laughs> uh, perfectest, obviously, is a word. Yeah, um, of course. Mm-hmm. Put that in your next book if you like. I will, yeah, thank you. Well, I'll credit you. It's my pleasure. No, don't, no credit required. Oh, okay. I'm giving it to thank you. Thank you. Perfectest. <laughs> um, so the timing was amazing because I had already read this or recently read this book when you chose it. Um, but then just to find out so many more things about about the authors and about their mum. And the audio book I found out recently is narrated by Miranda Tapsell. Yeah, I can't believe I didn't know what that. I love choice. Miranda. <laughs> what a perfect <laughs> that choice. That is so fantastic. But, yeah, I think one of the things that I loved about the book so much is that I had just been reading so much YA, which mm-hmm. is, you know, my, f- my favourite kind of category of books. Um, but I think, like, I think YA is not afraid to tackle really heavy topics and, and trauma and violence and, you know, whatever. But I did find that through some books I felt like as as a judge of the Literary Award and, and as a, a kind of ethical person I couldn't necessarily recommend some of them because of how indelicate they were in dealing with some of those topics and keeping in mind that, you know, I mean, I think all people are vulnerable but especially a young person who might be struggling and not understanding where they can reach out and where they can get help, I felt like some of those books were irresponsible in the way that they tackled those topics. And that's what really stood out for me with Catching Telecrow is that, you know, when you read it, there are so many heavy, like very, very heavy ideas and stories and events that take place. But it's handled in such a delicate, beautiful, poetic, symbolic way that I feel like really cares for its reader throughout. Mm. And that is so crucial. Like, I don't think that it has to be all or nothing. You know, we don't need either trauma porn or fluffies and bunnies and not talking about anything real. But, yeah, this beautiful kind of symbiosis I felt of kind of exploring trauma in a way that is responsible is what really stood out for me in that book. And the the trigger warning that we would give it would almost spoil it. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing about trigger warnings and content warnings that I find really difficult when it comes to art because it's like you need to ensure protection of your audience members and of your readers, and I think that that's crucial. Like, I'm certainly not in the the kind of no trigger warning argument field by any means, but at the same time it's like, well, what about spoilers and what about... You know, how much do you reveal and how can you reveal it? I guess that's also comes into, you know, when I recommend it for people. Yeah. I'm always like, hey, here's this amazing book. Um, there is some heavy content. If you feel like you need a trigger warning, especially around certain ideas, like yeah. if you know yourself and you're struggling particularly with 
uh, I don't know, graphic scenes of violence and you can ask me specifically if that's in there, then I can tell you it it is or it isn't. Um, But I guess that's made a lot more complicated if it's a more kind of general umbrella thing. Well, the trigger warning for this book is very specific. Also, you describe that as a librarian. I'm just wondering if we did we study together because it just sounded <laughs> to me like a qualified librarian giving a reader recommendation. It made my heart sing. Oh, like, I'm so glad. Like, well, I will accept jobs as a librarian if they come up. Yes. Well, let's build a library on this desert island and you and I yeah, can run the place. Sounds good. Yes. Shall we move on? I could talk to you all day about all of these books, but let's go with book number two. Could you please reveal the title and author of book two for us? The second book is The Mere Wife by Maria Devana Headley. It is a beautiful book. I Mm. think it was the first book I've ever read that I had to pick up immediately afterwards. Again, this is another one that I didn't necessarily read through immediately afterwards, but that desire Mm. was quite overwhelming. Um, it's just, it's genius. I really think it's a genius book. It's a very smart book. Yeah. And it is hooky. Like it just kind of keeps grabbing you. Keeps you on the edge of your seat. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm often, I'm very polyamorous in my love life and in my reading life. I often read multiple books at once, which my mum just cannot understand, both in my reading and my personal life. Um, (laughs) (laughs) no, she's getting there. But, um... (laughs) But, yeah, so I usually have a lot of books going and and don't necessarily – like, I'm not necessarily captivated by books really easily. Like, I have to kind of push myself. I think it's, you know, this generation of overstimulation constantly. I'm always watching shows like RuPaul's Drag Race, which is so so much colour and music and action. And so then reading text on a page is quite hard for me. But The Mere Wife just gripped me from the absolute beginning till the end. I couldn't put it down. I couldn't stop. It's just very special. Yeah, it really is. And it's not a book I would have picked up for myself, which is why I'm eternally grateful that you chose it because that meant that I read it Um, and I was surprised by it. I love being surprised by books. I don't think I'm going to like. It's my favourite thing. Yeah, Yeah. totally. So The Mere Wife is a contemporary retelling of that old kind of English um, fable, I guess. Is it a fable? Beowulf? I guess so. A classic tale? I don't know what to call it. Yeah, I would say a classic tale. Yeah. A a mythical Mythical, that's the one. Of sorts, yeah. Now, were you familiar with that story before you jumped into The Mere Wife or did it go backwards? Yeah, so that was actually the reason why Uh, I jumped into The Mere Wife is that in Year 12 literature I studied Beowulf. You did. And it really caught me off guard because it's it's honestly so, like, if you know me at all, it's very out of character for me to enjoy a mythical story that's really a lot of glorified toxic masculinity. Oh. The protagonist is this kind of, like, monstrous warrior Viking character. It's really outside of my usual <laughs> readings. Like, but I just loved it. In high school, I just loved it. I think there was something about the sort of iambic pentameter kind of rhythm of the book. It's beautifully written like we did um we studied Seamus Heaney's translation of it right um it was just beautifully written the movie was whack like the whole thing is just like absolutely wackadoo like you just you're just like what is going on like who thought of this (laughs) and I love that I just thought it was so bizarre and I think that that love and that kind of passion about it was so confusing for me to then find a feminist retelling was like a breath of fresh air of like, okay, I can make sense of this love and passion now because I can read it in a framework that actually applies to me in my life. (laughs) (laughs) So I was very grateful to find that. (laughs) 
So it's set, so the mere wife is set in a contemporary society with a kind of very fancy gated community, very waspish, and then you've got the, the monster that you talk of and his mum who kind of live in the mountain. Mm. And then the, they live very separate lives until the two sons, the son from each location, the mountain son and the very kind of rich son, encounter each other mm-hmm. and develop and to me, it's not an unlikely friendship. To me, it seems it would be the most normal thing for two kids to meet each other. I just don't think two kids. And... I don't think there's such a thing as an unlikely friendship between two children. Yeah, you know I think I, mean? like, I think adults look down and say, "Oh, that's weird that they have things in common." I don't. I don't it's like share that kids. view, right? Like, of course, they have. They have things they in common. They want to play. Yeah, let's yeah. break stuff. Let's run around. They're it's not like, like, oh, you've got different skin color, or oh, you've got like a different way of expressing yourself. They're just like, do you like Chasey? Correct. <laughs> yeah, I do. I love it. <laughs> I love let's that. Do it. <laughs> So, yeah. they, so it's pitched as this unlikely friendship and then these two mothers from, you know, opposite side of the tracks who are incre- like incredible characters. Oh, like the backstories so for each of them are really interesting. Yeah. And the book is funny, like surprisingly. It's funny. It's lighthearted. Funny. It's genius. It's beautifully well written. It gives you a kind of satisfaction that I feel like Beowulf doesn't I feel like because it's so focused on sort of iambic pentameter and retelling of this like classic story it doesn't really give you much historical context you don't I found myself longing to understand like why is there a monster why is the monster kind of angry like you sort of get it and it does explain a bit but there's a depth that's kind of missing from that story that I almost feel like Maria was able to fill in the blanks of Mm. and so I read this kind of being like oh I just feel like I get the other one so much more, even though they're kind of very different stories. And it made me want to go re- go back and reread Beowulf. But then I'm also worried I'll reread it and be like, oh, I don't like this anymore. Yeah, I think there are some things, particularly things we studied, that yeah. we really picked apart that might not stand up. Well, it was a fun book to study. And this is the thing is that I really believe high school ruined a lot of books for me because mm. of how much we had to pull them apart and couldn't just enjoy them. Yeah. But that was one that I actually found the more I pulled it apart, the more I liked it. Yeah. And that doesn't happen often. <laughs> no, it doesn't. No, because a lot of books don't stand up. A lot of books aren't written to be pulled apart like well, that. Well, exactly. God, I would never write a book with the intention of it being pulled apart like that. I would be like, please don't look that closely no, at people me. are underlining your books because they love it the way, exactly the way it is. <laughs> yeah, works. I'll take that, so, please. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's leave that as is. <laughs> I, I actually got to meet Maria Devana Headley when she was in town. Oh, for, please tell us the story. Yeah, so I met I met Maria last year for the Melbourne Writers Festival. She was here and we got to catch up and she was exactly how I imagined her to be, except tell, maybe way cooler. Tell like, me how you imagined her to be. I imagined her to be fascinating and very intelligent and very well-spoken and very kind of interested in the darker sides of things and... Um, yeah, I don't know. I, and then I met her and she was, like, really incredible. We had so much in common. It felt like I was talking to an old friend. Um, she took me to this shop in the city that I'd never been to that had all of It's exactly the place I would imagine that she would take me, but had all these sort of, like, skeletal animals in kind of frames and lots of, like, taxidermied creatures. And it was just amazing <laughs> and totally where... I would expect her to take me. And this shop exists. And <laughs> this shop exists, and I didn't know about it. I don't right. remember what it's called, but it was. Maybe it's bizarre. not there anymore. Maybe it was just yeah. there for the two of you to experience. It was a pop up that just came with her, like sauntering into town. It sounds almost supernatural. I love that. It idea. was, and it she, yeah, she feels very kind of supernatural and 
connected to this story in sort of deep ways and yeah it was it was a really special experience it was nice to kind of couple my reading of that with that time with her. Hmm. Have you yeah. read her other books? She's written quite a few. I haven't, not yet. All right, no. let's, del- let's get her back catalogue for the Desert Island. Yeah, please. Okay, for our library. I would like that, yes. Yeah. Okay, cool. We'll have a Maria section. <laughs> Shall we launch into the third book that you've brought with yeah, you today? Yeah, I would love to. So the third book is Tomboy Survival Guide by Ivan Coyote. I probably bring this book up and Ivan in general at least three times a week um, to everyone I meet. (laughs) I just... So I I probably wrote my first fangirl email to an author to Ivan. um, And I don't know, I feel like in Tomboy Survival Guide, like they talk... So so they talk a lot about being a non-binary person, living in Canada, what it was like kind of growing up as a tomboy, wanting to be like the boys getting told that they couldn't be, then eventually coming out as a lesbian and living as a lesbian, going into kind of sorts of radical feminism um, and then coming out as trans or non-binary and and beginning a medical transition, which is in so many ways exactly my story, just maybe a lot shorter in lifespan because they're a lot older than I am. Um, But, yeah, I sent them this fangirly email basically just saying, because I think... You know, I get I get fans sometimes come up and talk to me and it's it's really meaningful and it's really beautiful and I really appreciate it. But sometimes it's right after I've kind of given everything I have on a stage and it feels like they're asking so much more of me mm-hmm. and I have nothing left. Yeah. And it's this really hard balance because it's like I don't want to blow you off. I don't want to, like, be a diva or be sassy or whatever. I want to sit here and listen to your trauma and for you to unpack your entire life story with me. But I actually have nothing left in my reserves. Like, I gave it all just then. So I really wanted to reach out to Ivan with that in mind and really kind of be sensitive to that. And so I I basically reached out and said, I want you to know that I don't want anything from you. I don't need you to reply. I don't need you to engage. I just need you to know that I've spent my entire life trying to see my reflection in characters and I never have. And what I've done is that I've just kind of constantly picked up shards of glass of these different representations and tried to paste them together to create some kind of mirror reflection. But all I was ever really aware of was how far apart they were from each other Mm -hmm. and how much there was just this looming crack between them all. And reading Tomboy Survival Guide and seeing them speak at the Wheeler Centre was the first time that I actually truly felt representation. It's like, oh, my God, this is what this feels like. It's just a mirror image. And obviously we're very different, but having that kind of representation was... I mean, it it just makes you feel real. It makes you feel like you exist. If you spend your whole life looking in mirrors and seeing nothing back, can you even believe that you're real? So I sent them that email and I also sent them the afterword of my book, which is like a party scene where I meet myself at different ages. And I thought that they would really appreciate that. So I was just like, this is me giving something back. I hope that you get something out of it. And they didn't write back and I didn't need them to. And I tweeted about it and just was like, oh, I just sent my first like fangirl author thing. And they tweeted me back and was just like, it was, yeah, one of the most amazing emails I've received. And I just like cried (laughs) um yeah so that book was very special for me and especially in a time where I had just released my memoir I was kind of 
dealing with a lot of the stuff that they had sort of dealt with. And I and I feel because we have such a lack of intergenerational relationships in our community, younger queer people have no idea what our futures can look like. Yeah. And we don't have any role models because we've also been written out of the history books. So to have an older person write in kind of similar ways that I write um, and talk about their experience in similar ways, yeah, it just made me feel like, anything was possible and that there is a future in front of me because I think for trans and gender diverse people, considering the kind of mental health battles that we have and the statistics of self-harm and and suicide and all of that sort of stuff, existing isn't obvious. It's not a given the way that it is with other communities or other people. It's not obvious that we're going to live to see 30 or 40 or later. So I think having someone in their, I believe they're in their 50s, um, talking about that. I think Ivan was born in 1969. So, okay. yes, your math is good. Yes, great. Yes. Um, yeah, so to see that was really, really important. And I think also what kind of resonated with me the most is that, like, I think angry activism is really crucial. I think it creates so much change. I think rioting and smashing windows and egging senators and doing whatever we have to do in order to have our voices heard is really, really important. I also think being able to be kind and soft in the face of adversity, maybe not to your oppressors, but to your community members, is resistance and is subversive. And that's the main takeaway I got from seeing Ivan speak, is just how fundamentally kind they are and how much they just kill people with kindness. Like the moderator was, I would say, not very switched on to trans issues and was trying to kind of pull out some sort of trauma porn from them. And they just gave her nothing. (laughs) They just kept giving her stories about how kind they are or like how they just carve space for themselves by being kind. And she was like trying to rile them up, trying to get them to like be angry and they just gave her nothing. And I just looked at them and I was like, that's what I wanna be, Yeah, you know? And, and there's something to be said for growing up as a woman in a patriarchal society who tells you to be quiet and shut up and silence yourself and then speaking up and being loud and bold and it's this subversive feminist action and then you transition. And suddenly it's not subversive to stand up and speak out and be loud. I have to be very careful of that. Embodying someone who presents as a male or is read as a male, whether I am or not, is kind of irrelevant. People see me as a man. And then expect certain things from you. Exactly. So it's actually more subversive for me to be really soft and really kind. And so I have to be because that's what I believe in. Yeah, because you're subverting those expectations of, of what people expect from you. Yeah. Now, I was at that very same Wheeler Centre event that you were at. We were obviously not best buddies then. Unfortunately, we we wasted time. I know, (laughs) but we'll make up for it on the island. Um, So my um, love of Ivan's writing goes back a few years. The book that came out that I read almost straight away was Missed Her, um, which was 2010. Um, Gosh, was it that long ago? No, it (laughs) can't have been. Anyhow, dates are irrelevant. I read Missed Her and then I read One Man's Trash. And in the library we have these little review cards where librarians are encouraged to write little reviews um, and pop them in the book and put it on display and encourage someone to read it. So I popped a little review inside um, a short story collection of Ivan's called One Man's Trash that I absolutely loved. 
Um, and then the book was returned a few weeks later with my review card in it and someone had annotated on the bottom of it and said, um, thank you, Natalie, I read the book in 24 hours and it changed my world. Incredible. And I feel, you know, connected to someone that I'm not connected to because we've both read this book and it's both had an impact, mm. or it's had an impact on both of us. And so from then I read Gender Failure, which is this kind of really lovely collaboration that Ivan's done with Ray Spoon, um, another kind of non-binary artist. And there's a lot of um, kind of poetry and song lyrics and because they went on tour and performed together and then collaborated, Mm. kind of compiled all of their performances into a book. Um, And then I went to see them speak last year and I was giddy. Like I was just... (laughs) Like the straightest girl in the room and just <laughs> so giddy I couldn't believe it. And then I met Ivan. Yeah, they're such a stud as well. Oh, yeah, I'm like blushing, a, I know. A real heartthrob. And so I went up afterwards and got my book signed and had some photos taken with them and they were just kind and gracious. And as you say, having been on a panel, having told stories, having read parts of their work, having given everything, that, that after the event um, meeting, meet and greet kind of time can be so empty mm. because they don't have anything to give because they're done. They've finished their performance for the day. And as a fan, I don't have anything to give but like drivel about how excited <laughs> I am and how much I adore them and how their writing means something and how I work mm. in a library and I recommend their books. And that's nice for them to hear, I'm sure. I hope it's it's encouraging and positive. Mm. But, you know, at the end of a very long day and after you've been on stage, it's like these conversations are... And also, I mean, you know, what I wrote at the end of my book as well is that I don't really want to hear that that I'm an inspiration or that I'm a role model. It's not that helpful to you. No, I actually want to know, well, what have I inspired you to do? Yes. What have I role modelled? Like, what behaviour have I role modelled that you're going to embody? Because at the end of the day, I will leave this event as a trans person and may not get home safely. Yes. How will you ensure that the world will look differently in my future and in everyone else's future so that that's not something we have to worry about? Exactly. And so a lot of those kind of empty compliments or things, like, they're not calls to action, What I'm looking for is a call to action. That's what I feel like my book is. That's what I feel like Ivan's books are. That's what I feel like most books are written by marginalised people, is that we're not writing our books so that you can be like, oh, wow, they're so brave. We're writing our books so that you can make a world where we don't have to be brave anymore. That's right. It's almost an insult to call you brave to that you got out of the house this morning. Well, it's also like, yeah, I didn't choose to be a role model. I didn't choose to be brave. I don't really necessarily want to be. Like, you know, marginalised people are activists from birth, yeah. whether we want to be or not. How is it brave simply by by acknowledging your identity and being the person that you were born to be? How is that brave? I don't and, – and I'm not brave. No one's calling me brave. <laughs> Do I even look brave? Like, are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, how many people of non-marginalised identities get called brave for writing a book? Exactly. Exactly. Like, yeah, it's hard work. Yeah, maybe I'm I'm talented. Maybe I'm good at what I do. Like, all of that stuff is great. But, I mean, for example, this is the longest conversation I've ever had with anyone on a podcast or a media or anything that's not about my trans identity. This is about books. Yeah, I don't get asked about that. You're a reader. <laughs> I don't get asked about that. But you're a reader. And to me, that's yeah. the most, I mean, I hate to insult you. That's the most interesting part about no, you. No, I will take that. Is that, you, is that you read and that you love reading and that Every time I present at schools, at workplaces, and I'm like, I would never ask you that. Why don't you ask me what it's like getting a book published? Yeah. Why don't you ask me what 
I like cooking for what's, dinner. What's your Mikey balance? <laughs> what's my Mikey balance? It's quite low. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that. That's okay. <laughs> Navo, do you have a specific part of any of Ivan's writing that you want to share with us? Yeah, I do. So this is actually from the event that they did at the Wheeler Centre. They read this excerpt and I just got full body chills, like so much so that I felt like they were coming outside of my body and going straight (laughs) to them and being like, excuse me, I relate. (laughs) Um, And I, I, I can't tell you where it's actually from. I think it might be from gender failure, but I haven't, I've searched it into Google many times and haven't actually found it. I can research it for Um, you because that's my job. We'll talk about it later on the island. Yep. Yep. Um, Cool. So I will, I will read it now without crying. For the first couple of weeks, I just couldn't get over my own heart beating. It all of a sudden just seemed so right there. For the first month or so after surgery especially, my heart, it was just right there, just under my skin. It was barely covered. It felt like barely, hardly protected. Whenever I sang or walked up a flight of stairs or anything that raised my heart rate even a little, I could see it thumping right through my T-shirt. I would watch it pulse, kind of alarmed at how vulnerable my heart suddenly seemed without its armour, without its breastplate, barely hidden by the skin. Before, to hurt me, you would have had to stab so much deeper than now. It's just so beautiful. Ivan Quirity. And I've just never, I've never heard anyone talk about gender affirmation surgery in such a, a painful way and such a deep way and such a vulnerable way. Like there's so many narratives out there of like, you know, born in the wrong body and once you do this, you'll be happy forever and whatever. But it's so much more nuanced and complicated than that. Changing your body and making choices and there's so much grief and harm and pain in a world that wasn't built for people like us. And we live with that in our bodies. We live with that trauma every day of our lives. And to hear someone talk about how much their heart was just right there after surgery, I just, I was like, that's me, you know, because you have nothing to hide behind anymore. It's all there. It's poetic. It's such a poetic way to describe something physical. Yeah, yeah. And it's not the wrong body, it's your body. Yeah, it's your body. You've just changed it and have to get used to it. And sometimes it's just as alien as it was before because flesh prisons are weird and we're so much more complicated than that. A flesh prison? Yeah. Is that what you're, <laughs> is that what you're calling our bodies? Uh, some people do, yeah. Right, I've okay. heard it used before. I can't say that I, I um, create, I can't coin that term, but yeah. <laughs> some well, days it, it feels of, like that. It does, doesn't it? There's there's a discomfort in our own skin and, and it's on a spectrum which is very wide and it's not the same for everyone. It's just because our bodies can't contain all that we are. No. There's just so much more. Yeah, we are. Lucky people take all of that and write it down for us. Yeah, thank God. Right? How <laughs> else would we cope? I don't know. Yeah, my gratitude for writers is exponential. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for joining me today to talk thank about you books for having and me. writing. 
Actually, I have one more question before you go. Yeah. You said you're in the middle of reading five books. Yeah. Do you want to tell me which one you're enjoying the most? Oh, well, I just finished Highway Bodies by Alison Evans, okay. which is fantastic. Oh, that's new. That's brand new. It's brand new. Yeah. Alison's a good friend of mine, and I just feel like they write non-binary and trans characters so seamlessly into a story that is just really great. Like, I feel like sometimes representation might come at the cost of, like, really good writing or really good reading, and this is not the case with Alison's writing. So also Ida, which was their first, um, or not their first book, but their previous book, is brilliant as well, and just really great, like, fantasy YA. But Highway Bodies is um, a zombie apocalypse, essentially, in which there are queer young people trying to figure out their way and it's brilliant and what like watching them read an excerpt is just the best it's so much fun um what else am i reading at the moment i'm reading a lot of things uh i started reading braving the wilderness by brene brown oh yes um is that her newest i'm not sure i got given it by a friend it may be Um, But I got some really great things out of that as far as just kind of coping mechanisms and, you know, self-love is sort of a full-time job, so you have to be constantly working at it. If you you like Brene Brown, I have read um, Daring Greatly. Is that also one of that hers? That is also one of hers. Okay, it's, cool. Yeah, it's really lovely. Yeah, she's yeah. a really great writer. Yeah. I really like her analyses of things. Yeah, lovely is the wrong word. So I take, <laughs> I take it back and I don't take it back because yeah. it is. It's yeah. all hard. It's yeah, hard it work. it is. Yeah. It's not, yeah. So this is why I have so many books going at once because I usually have sort of a non-fiction memoir heavy style book. I have another one that's maybe like a self-help book. I have another one that's a lighter YA. And then I might have another one that's a darker YA. (laughs) Have you been into my bedroom and seen my reading pile? Because you pretty much are describing what I'm in the midst of as well. I'm also a polyamorous reader. I've never used that term for myself before, but I'm going to. I'll explain it to mum and we'll be all right. Yeah, I'm sure it'll be okay. Yeah. But yeah. I also have a non-fiction. I have a kind of self-help instructional uh, <laughs> book that's, that's helping me make some decisions about yeah, life. Yeah, fantastic. And there's a memoir. There's a traumatic fiction that I'm just kind yep. of getting through slowly. And yep. there's a bit of a fast-paced sort of fast-paced page turner, which yep. is kind of tying the room together. Yeah, because I need that one to remind me that I can read. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like the other ones are like... Sometimes I just get a sort of like paralysis from them. And they I'm make like, you stall. Oh You're like, I don't yeah. want to pick that up. I do not want to be schooled in anything right now. I yeah. just need to escape really quickly. Yeah. And also the world is so heavy mm. and so hard to live in. And being alive is so difficult. Yeah. So yeah, like reading for escape is very, very important. Reading for education, great. Reading for self-development, awesome. Reading for escape, just as important. Yeah. Yeah, I like to call it reading for pleasure because it is an ab- reading is an absolute pleasurable experience. I will thank you once more. Yay. I, I thank you formally for joining me and informally because we're going to have a lot of fun on this island with your book selections. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. I'm excited to run our library on this island. Yeah, let's, um, let's, put, a, let's put a framework together when we turn the microphones off. Yep. <laughs> um, 
Okay, well, you can read this episode's show notes, including a list of all the books that we've discussed today. That'll be on our Goodreads page, and you can find that on the library's website at www.melbournelibraryservice.com.au and look for the read page. I'd also love to hear what you're reading on your desert island. Tweet at Library with the hashtag Desert Island Books and let me know those books that you simply cannot live without. You can download previous Desert Island Books episodes in your favourite podcasting app at SoundCloud, iTunes, simply search Melbourne Library Service. Happy reading!